Amen. Go ahead and take your seat here in the room. Live stream folks, good to have you. Those who are watching on demand this week, it's good to be with you. It's good to be gathered in the name of the Lord. Amen. And so uh, hopefully you're reaching for your Bibles right now, your, uh, your regular old paper Bibles, hardbound, leatherbound, whatever it is. Get those open to Romans chapter 5 or on your smartphone or tablet. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through the end of the chapter is where we're going to be. And um, I think this is, uh, this is true. If you like something, you always want more of it. True? If you like something, you always want more of it. And that's why when you go to Thornton and you go to one of the three ice cream shops that are all within 12 steps of each other, that's why they offer three scoops. Because if one scoop, scoop is awesome, isn't it? One scoop is awesome. Two scoops is amazing. Three scoops is mind-blowing. And you realize you can get three different kinds of ice cream in all three of the scoops. So if you, if you, if you have a little bit, a lot must be awesome. If you have some of it, you always want more. Or vacation time. Think about vacation time for a moment. If you get a week, you always say at the end of the week, man, I wish we had two weeks. I wish we had another week. And if you get two weeks, you're thinking, wouldn't it be great if we could take like an entire month? And then if you take an entire month, it's like, we are never coming back. We are staying on permanent vacation. Or, Brooke, would you help me for a second? Brooke's behind one of those masks, right? Just come up here for a second, just physical distance here. But like this $5 bill, for example, do you like this $5 bill? Would you like it if I gave this to you? Here you go. Just take it. That's great. What if I gave you another one? Getting the first one, does it make you want this one even more? Sure, take it. You can't come to third service, okay? Just. <laughs> if you really like something, you always want more of it. Now, if we could turn it to more spiritual things, more important things than ice cream and vacation and money, think about this now. This is Robert Murray McShane who said this. It is a sure mark of grace to want more. It is a sure mark of grace to desire more. If I get some grace, I always want more of that grace. If I've experienced God pouring His grace out in my life, I'm like, Lord, give me more of that. Pour more of that out in my life. If God offers me one scoop of grace, I'm stepping up to the counter and saying, I'll take three, please. I always want more of God's grace when I've experienced it in my life. And in today's passage, Obviously, the topic is grace, and Paul, the apostle, is talking about grace abounding to those who have been made righteous in Jesus Christ by that same grace. And the grace provides us something better than ice cream, something better than time off, something better than money. Grace provides an abundant life here and eternal life hereafter. And when you get a taste of that, You're always going to want more. A taste of the abundant life, I want more of that. A taste of eternity, I want more of that. And so that's what we're going to see. Romans chapter 5, beginning at chapter uh, verse 12, and right through to the end of the chapter. So you follow along in your Bible as I read. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, 
and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? a great passage of Scripture that is. And here's what we're going to see in our notes. Of course, we're in this series called The Power of the Gospel, and we're looking today at uh, grace as one facet of that gospel. And we're going to see that only through the grace of Jesus Christ will I be able to gain abundant and eternal life. If you want abundant life, if you want eternal life, there is only one way to get it, and it's through the grace of of Jesus. So let's look first of all, we're going to look at the crisis, the solution, and the result. Let's look first of all at the crisis. Uh, Adam brought sin and death upon us all. And if you look at verses 12 through 19, we just, we just read, you see this extended illustration or this contrast that Paul sets up between Adam, uh, the first man, and Jesus, the second man. Hopefully, you followed with that all the way through. And if you just dip down into verse 14 for a second, the latter part of that verse, it says that Adam is a type of the one, that is speaking of Jesus, He's a type of the one who was to come, and by type he means a model or a pattern. And so he's going to set this pattern up, and he's going to show how Adam is just like Jesus, only not quite like Jesus, parallel in all the points, but a contrast in how it all plays out. Adam being the negative example and Jesus being the positive example in his illustration. One brings sin, the other brings salvation. Now, before we get deep into all of that, when we start talking about uh, Adam, I feel like any time we talk about Adam in the Scriptures, we need to have this little sidebar conversation to talk about Adam and to talk about the historicity of Adam, that he truly did exist. We need to qualify it because so many people today, and if you interact at all with unbelievers, if they're willing even to talk about it, one of the big things they're always going to raise is about the creation and did it really happen and can the Bible be trusted and is that just metaphor or is it just a myth that you have in the Bible? And so I feel like we need to just address some things here before we move on about what we believe. So several notes about the reference to Adam here. First of all, the Apostle Paul sees Adam as a historical figure, and we ought to see Adam as a historical figure as well. 
Whatever angst people have about this, Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And uh, even Christians who are starting to look at the Scriptures and say, you know what, I think maybe, Adam, that might not be like an actual story. Uh, We need to step back from that and see that the Apostle Paul sees Adam as a legitimate historical figure. And so whatever angst people have about the creation narrative, and we're not going to deal with any of that in this message or the timelines and how it all all played out, we have to remember Adam is a historical figure. And further, and I love this from John Lennox, I've quoted him before, he's a mathematician, he's an apologist, a strong Christian, a researcher. He says this, the real conflict… There is a real conflict, he said. There is a real conflict, but it is not science versus religion. It is theism versus atheism. It's whether there's a God or not a God. And then he makes this startling point, and there are scientists on both sides of it. Okay, It's it's not science versus religion. It's theism versus atheism, and there's scientists on both sides of this conflict of this debate. Adam is a historical figure. Secondly, we're going to say this in our little sidebar, Adam, not Eve, bears primary responsibility for sinning despite the fact that Satan makes his first appeal to Eve. Now, this does not mean, ladies, that you are off the hook in terms of being sinners. I can assure you, carefully, (laughs) I can assure you that all the women in this room are also sinners. Husbands, do not amen that statement. I assure you that will not go well for you. So, women are not off the hook. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All men, all women have sinned. Any reference in the Scriptures, of course, to man and men, if you're looking at those and you're offended from the standpoint of that's so sexist, or if you're more protected by it going, well, I'm glad they're talking about men there. But any references to man or men in the New Testament especially are the Greek word anthropos, which we get the word anthropology from. It's more of a generic word. Unless the context demands that it refers to a man-male, then it is more um, uh, appropriate to translate it as people or humanity in that point. So it's referring to all of us. It is not gender-specific. A third thing we'd say is um, Adam. what Adam forfeited included not only the sinless perfection of the creation that God had made. Remember, He made everything. He said it's good. He said it's very good. He made everything perfect in the garden. But what Adam forfeited was not only the sinless perfection of the creation, but more critically, what Adam forfeited was the immediate personal presence of God in the garden. In fact, in Genesis 3.8, it says that Um, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, they recognized that sound and weren't startled by it because it was a regular occurrence that God would be walking in the garden with them. That they had this one-on-one, intimate, personal, close relationship with God. And that was forfeited when sin entered into the world. So that now you and I, all these thousands of years later, you and I are in this position where we worship a God that we do not see. In fact, in John chapter 20, the resurrected Jesus is is making his appearance to to all the apostles, but there was one apostle who hadn't yet uh, seen Jesus, and he was the doubter. He was Thomas. And he was like, unless I see him, unless I touch the wounds, I'm not going to believe. So Jesus very graciously shows up and has a one-on-one with him. 
And Thomas makes his declaration after seeing him and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, you know, you believe because you've seen me, but blessed are those who do not see me and yet believe. That's everyone in this room who believes. And we have this longing, though. You know, we believe, though we don't see him, but we have this longing to see him face to face. In fact, where we're going with all of this, just to to see the end of the story, we get to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 3, and this is like the period or the exclamation point at the end of the sentence, below the, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. I mean, that's the end of the story. That's the beginning, the launching point for eternity, because that's the thing we long for more than anything else, is to be in the, in the visible presence of God, to actually see Him with our own eyes. And all the other priorities we might have in life, anything else that we might think is important, all of it is a very, very, very distant second to this priority. If I was to give every believer in the room a chance right now and say, what's the one thing you want more than anything else? We would say, I just want to see Jesus. I just want to see Him. We'd long for that moment when everything else, I would give up everything. I would give up all of it to be able to see Jesus right now. Because that's the longing of every human heart. That's what Adam forfeited. That's what we're getting back to because that's the most precious thing we lost. And then uh, finally this in this little sidebar, one more thing. Um, death, introduced by Adam's sin, death is not natural for human beings. And we need to get past this whole thing that we say to people when, when there's some loss of life, and we say, well, you know, death is just a natural part of life. No, it's not. And any of you who have lost a loved one, no, it's not. It's not a natural part of life. God didn't fashion us to go through death. It's not part of the original creation. It's part of the curse. It came as a result of sin. God never created us to go through the pangs of death. This is why even Christians who, no, I get it from the New Testament, Paul said, you know, the thing about Christians is they grieve, but not as those who have no hope. I get that we grieve differently, but nevertheless, we grieve. Because it's not natural that we should go through this separation from our loved ones, that we should feel the pains of death, that we should go through the the, the transition from this life to the next. Grief is well-placed because it is definitely as horrible as it seems. So all that said... All that said now, uh, the sidebar over, verse 12, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread, there's the true pandemic, write that in your Bibles, that's the true pandemic right there, that's the one we should be most concerned about, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, This, this is the crisis. This is our crisis. This is a global crisis, and this is a personal crisis. And then Paul recaps what he said previously in the letter, namely verse 13, that sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. So before Moses came, before we got the Ten Commandments, before all of the Torah was written, even before that sin existed, we know that. 
but it wasn't clearly laid out. The law laid it out for us. Sin is not counted, it says, where there is no law. So the law was articulated for us so we would know the grievousness of our own sin. The Old Testament articulated what sin is, and the purpose of that, I've said this several times now in the series, the purpose of the Ten Commandments isn't that you would live up to the standard and please God. The purpose of the Ten Commandments is to show you you can't live by the Ten Commandments, and you need God. You need a Savior. And so, all of this points to the consequence or the curse of sin. Verse 14, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even before the law. There was still death. There was still physical death. There was still spiritual death or second death. People died as a result of the curse, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Adam just had, there was just one rule. The garden was created. It was perfect. God gave one rule. Just don't eat from this tree. That's the only rule. I mean, you didn't even need to write it down. Just knew what it was. Didn't need to be posted anywhere. Didn't need to have a memory card. What was that rule again? No, just don't eat this tree. Anything else you can eat from and enjoy. Adam broke it. But the point here is that you're guilty of sin even if you didn't commit Adam's sin. Adam's sin was don't eat this tree, but there were a lot of other sins. Obviously, Cain committed a very different one than Adam's sin. All were still guilty. All violated God's moral code. The point of all this is to point out the crisis that we're in. But I don't really think that we need a lot of reminding about this. I think, in fact, that in the first several chapters here of Romans, we've been reminded of that over and over again. I believe that we know that humanity is sinful. We get reminded of it in our newsfeed every day. I don't think we need to be reminded of our own sin. I don't even need a newsfeed to be reminded of my own sin. I don't think we need to be reminded that the world as a whole, the world system that we look at, is sickened with sin. But the reason we need to rehearse this over and over again is because until we accept the devastating reality of universal sin and personal sin, then we will never understand our need of the solution. We will not take Jesus' offer of salvation seriously. You will not experience life as God intends until you acknowledge the crisis If we don't think we're in a crisis over sin, again, we won't look for the solution. So let's get there. Let's look at this. Thankfully, God provides the solution. Hopefully, you understand the crisis that you're in. And the solution is that Jesus offers the free gift of Himself. Paul writes here, verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. This is where he's setting up the contrast. So there's a type, Adam, Jesus, but it's a contrast. And so the free gift of Jesus is not like the trespass of Adam. There's a a type here between the two, but it plays out completely differently. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the effect of the trespass and the grace, verse 16, and the free gift is not 
like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass. Notice now, the result of that was condemnation. That's where we all sit right now under condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. There's the counterpoint to that that Jesus brought us. Adam condemned us to death. Jesus reversed that and justified us by His own death on the cross and by His glorious resurrection from the tomb. Now, when we break it down and organize it, let me throw a chart up here on the screen, and this is going to help us with what we've already seen and what's coming in the passage, but you're going to see this point and counterpoint, this contrast in the type that Adam is. We are all in Adam. If we could move to the end of the chart, we're all in Adam. Adam, the words associated with him is he sinned, he brought death, he brought condemnation upon us. Uh, It was a result of his disobedience, and therefore sin increased and death reigned. But if you look at the parallels with Jesus, Jesus was entirely, is entirely righteous, and that brings life to us. And instead of condemnation, we are justified by Him. Instead of Adam's disobedience, it's Jesus' obedience. Instead of sin increasing, we have grace abounding in place of it and covering it. And instead of death reigning, it's eternal life that reigns. And all of these phrases, all of these words are in this passage. Adam versus Jesus. And as you think about what line you're on currently, you have to remember that the default starting point for everyone is that they are in Adam. And those who believe, as we saw back in Romans 4, are in Christ. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. In fact, a helpful little note in the ESV study Bible, all people are either in Adam or in Christ. All are in Adam by physical birth. That's all of humanity. While only those with the new birth are in Christ, do you have that new birth? And this is where it comes down to, what are you going to do with this message? How how are each one of us going to respond to this free gift of grace that's being offered to us in light of the crisis that we're in? Verse 17, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that's Adam, much more will those who, very important phrase now, get this underlined in your Bibles, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. It's, it's these that are going to, notice, reign in life through the death of the one man, Jesus Christ. Those who receive, those who receive the abundance of His grace. Have you received His grace? It's an offer of grace. Sadly, there are many people in the world today who are fully versed in the gospel. They know all about Jesus, whether they grew up with it and heard it in church and then walked away from it, or by whatever means, they're fully versed in the gospel. They know about Jesus. They've heard the message we preach. They are aware of their need. They even understand the crisis. They know that humanity is sinful. They know that the world is corrupt. And yet, for whatever reason, they reject this gospel message. They reject this free gift of grace that's being offered. There are a lot of reasons why people reject the gospel. Some people are so taken with pleasure, they so love the world, they love the way the world makes them feel, they simply can't abandon that pleasure. For many people, it's simply that they're gripped by wealth and possessions, and that becomes their God. 
Why would I give up all that I have or all that I could gain and all that I could earn for the gospel? Some people, and this is a primary concern of Paul in this letter, but some people are consumed by religion. It's their religious rites and rituals. It's the forms that make them happy and make them feel satisfied, but they don't have any kind of acceptance of the actual grace of God. Some people are filled with pride and self-determination. I can make it on my own. I can do this without God. I don't need His grace. People reject the gospel for many reasons. In fact, the reason why the gospel, I would just say this, the reason why the gospel is preached inside of churches, the reason why Paul is writing a letter to a church to articulate the gospel so clearly is because that's as far as any preacher needs to go to find people who have not yet been saved. As we've seen, one of Paul's principal concerns in writing this letter is people in the church who think that their religion can save them. Five times, in fact, in this paragraph, he uses the phrase free gift to determine how we get saved. Free gift. If it's free, It means you can't earn it. You can't work for it. It's free. I think we struggle with understanding what this means. Yesterday, Cheryl and I uh, went out to do a little shopping, and um, we collect PC points through the year. Any PC points people, PC Optimum people? You're the smart ones. I'm telling you, Cheryl and I have $650 worth of points that we've accumulated through this year. Okay? And now we spend it all in December, and we buy stocking stuffers, and we buy things for Christmas dinner. We, 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 just, we use all that money towards Christmas. Helps to buy gifts, all of that. And so yesterday, we went to Shoppers Drug Mart, because they had a deal on, by the way, I'm not getting paid by uh, Loblaw Corporation. Just want you to know that. This is not a, a commercial advertisement. We're not sponsored by them in any way here at Harvest. But we went to Shoppers Drug Mart, because they had the deal on where you could spend less points and get more. So we went there to fill our basket up, and we filled our basket up, and we made off like bandits. I mean, we were even wearing masks at the time. <laughs> and like, we're out to the parking lot, and we put it all in the, in the car, and then we're driving away, and Cheryl says, we just got all that stuff for free. I said, no, we didn't. We paid for it all throughout the year. You don't think some guy at Loblaw Corporation didn't sit down with his calculator and figure out this is how much we have to charge on all the goods that people are going to buy so that we could actually add the points on to their little program so we can give them their own money back. Everybody understands that, right? You you understand how points things work? It's not free. We didn't get free stuff. We just got our own stuff back. But listen... You can tell Loblaw definitely didn't pay me to say that part, right? Here's the thing. Your points program is not free. Nothing in life is free. You're going to pay for all of it. But what Jesus offers us is genuinely free. It costs us nothing. It's a free gift of His grace. It isn't by our effort, but 100% by His We simply receive it like any gift. 
And it's a gift when we first receive it. And it's an ongoing gift for the rest of our lives. And when we think about this, even as believers, here's where we can struggle because we can still say, well, you know, I got my salvation free, but then I feel like I need to keep serving Him. I need to keep working for Him. I need to keep giving. I need to be generous. I need to serve others. I need to do all of these things. Somehow we, we still flip over a switch in our minds like we're still doing this to earn something from Him. And we'd be wrong about that. It's grace when we first get it. It's grace throughout our lives. It's a free gift at all points during our earthly existence. And Lewis Sperry Schaefer said this, all attempts to repay his gift, be they ever so sincere, serve only to frustrate his grace and to lower the marvelous kindness of God to the sordid level of barter and trade. How faithfully we should serve him, but never to repay him. The solution for our sin is the free gift of Jesus. And the result then, notice this next, is I can be justified and live. Two key words in that statement, justified. By justified, Paul means saved, forgiven, declared righteous, however you want to say that, all words and concepts that are used throughout the New Testament. In other words, God sees us when we're justified. God sees us without our sin. God sees us without our sin. I know that's hard for us to even understand, but God sees us without our sin. And the reason why He sees us without our sin is because the entirety of our sin was placed on Jesus Christ at the cross. Our sin was taken off of us and put on to Him. So Jesus, can, God can now look at us and say, that person is righteous, that person is justified because of Jesus Christ. So by justified, Paul means saved, forgiven, declared righteous on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. By live, we mean exactly what was said off the top, to be able to gain both abundant life here and eternal life when we die. You remember that Jesus, if we jump over to John's gospel for a moment in John 3.16, Jesus having the conversation with Nicodemus, and he said that for those who believe, they will gain everlasting or eternal life. That's what we're waiting for. That's still to come. But if you fast forward a little bit in John's gospel to John 10.10, the latter part of that, Jesus says, I am come, I've come, or I came, that they may have life and have it abundantly. And he's talking about now. That even before we get to eternal life, we ought to be living an abundant life here and now. And so the question is, are you experiencing the abundant life? Are you experiencing, here's a phrase we're going to look at in a moment, are you experiencing the super abundant life, the grace-filled life that God intends for you? Paul says, verse 18, as one trespass by Adam led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness by Jesus that one act of righteousness was his death on the cross, leads to justification. And notice, life for all men, all people. Another of the contrast comes then in verse 19 between disobedience and obedience. Then in verse 20, he says this, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, this is so important, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. More sin, more grace. And this is where there are some people, I get it, who don't want to receive the gospel, don't want to come to Jesus because they're like, you don't know how far gone I am. 
You don't know how long I've been at this. You don't know how many people I've hurt. You don't know about the skeletons in my closet. You don't know how much sin has a grip on my life. I just don't think God would receive me. And what Romans 5 is saying and what Romans 6 will tell us when we look at that is if there's more sin, there's more grace. No matter how much sin there is, there's more than enough grace to cover it. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Super abounding, in fact. And that's the word where it says grace abounded. It's, it's, it's super abounding. Robert Mounts, in fact, says this is exceeding, exceeding, exceedingly immeasurable grace. It's, it's overflowing beyond grace. It makes me think about the benediction in Ephesians 3.20. You know, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Far more abundantly than all we ask or think. We often think about that in terms of blessings. I might think to ask God for this much blessing, but God is going to give me even more than that. But think about it in terms of your sin. I wouldn't even think to ask God to forgive me for this. But God is prepared to pour out superabundant grace to match all of the sin, far more than any sin that you could imagine or you could think about. God's already prepared to forgive that. And He does it according, again, this is Ephesians 3.20, He does it according to the power that's at work within us. This is the power of the gospel. God wants us to live an abundant life. But then here's where a lot of Christians get off base on this, thinking about this abundant life. They immediately default into thinking about how the prosperity preachers see this. Because the prosperity preachers talk about the abundant life, but they talk about it in the wrong way. They talk about the wrong things. Certainly not what the Scriptures talk about here. For the prosperity preacher, it's all about power and influence. If, if you'll do A, God will do B. If you do this, God will give you influence. God will give you a power in the world. Or it becomes all about your health. If you'll do this, if you'll give this offering, if you'll say this prayer, if you'll do it this way, God will heal you of whatever your disease is. My suspicion is that prosperity churches do as many funerals as our kind of church. Or, if it's not about power and influence, or it's not about physical health, then it is about wealth, materialism. If you give this offering, God will bring that upon you tenfold. But none of that is what the Scriptures mean in terms of the abundant life. This is about what verse 21 says, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It leads to eternal life, but until that day, this grace is still being poured out. And so what we're talking about here in terms of the abundant life is when you're on track with Jesus, when, there's, when, when, when you've been forgiven by Him and become a believer, then there's grace being poured out on you in a super abundant way, and you're going to be experiencing that grace. You can be living, in contrast to what the prosperity preachers would, would, would teach you, you can be living an obscure life, no one noticing you, no influence, no power. You could be living an unhealthy life. You, you could be infirmed. You could be terminal. You could be chronic. 
You could be living a poor life. You could have barely enough to make it every month, dependent on others for your own well-being. You can be all of those things, any one of those things, or all three of those things, or a combo of any two of those things. And you can be abounding, superabounding in the grace of God and be the most influential, most healthy, most wealthy person you know. Because the grace of God is everything. Christian life, properly lived, superabounding in the grace of God is the most fulfilling life at all because it provides us with things we've talked about in this series already. It provides us with the things that are most important in life that have nothing to do with physical health or wealth or power and influence. It has to do with identity and purpose and destiny. The grace of God poured out in our lives means we know who we are, we know what our purpose in life is, and we know exactly where we're going. And we're not wavering in any of that, not in the least. It means that as Christians we have our eyes off of the things of this world and our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. It means that our priorities are different than the priorities of our unbelieving friends. When the grace of God is superabounding in our life, we are no longer gripped by guilt, fear, and shame. Again, we talked about this just two weeks ago, but instead we experience freedom and, and victory and joy in our life. And because of all of this, we see the world and we see our circumstances differently. That too is the grace of God. All of that is what Jesus means by the abundant life. You see, everybody wants that abundant life. Everybody wants it. Not just Christians. I mean, everybody wants an abundant life. If you were to do a survey, grab a clipboard and head down to Dunlop Street or take a tablet and go to Georgian Mall and just start asking people. Put a, put a survey up on your social media and ask people to answer the question or just go and Google what do people want out of life, and you'll find survey after survey of what people want, and it's always going to sound very similar. What do people really want? Happiness, success, financial freedom, peace, security, a balanced life, to feel fulfilled, to be a confident person, to be loved. And we know, of course, that the gospel of Jesus Christ provides an abundant life to fulfill all of that for us. The very things that every human heart longs for. All of it coming to us by the superabundant grace of God. Adam brought sin and death upon all of us, but Jesus offers the free gift of Himself. And Jesus stands ready to justify us and to give us this abundant life if only we would receive His grace. And having heard all of this, everything that Romans 5 teaches us about grace, to think about how God is offering us this free gift and we might actually still step back and still wonder about it because it seems too wonderful, too incredible. 
And we might wonder, what have I done to deserve a love like this? And the answer, of course, is nothing. Nothing. We cannot earn what God so freely gives to us.